episode 210, How Social Workers Improve Patient Outcomes, The Big Reveal. Today, I talk with Jonathan Singer, host of the Social Work Podcast, as well as Associate Professor at Loyola University Chicago School of Social Work. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today I talk with Jonathan Singer, who is the host of the renowned Social Work Podcast, as well as Associate Professor at Loyola University Chicago School of Social Work. I asked Jonathan to come on the podcast today because I've had this growing sense of disconnect between all of the talk about social determinants of health, all the talk about how clinical care comprises a relatively small impact on patient outcomes compared to environmental factors, how the most important number in healthcare is someone's zip code, all this talk swirling around and rarely do social workers come up in that conversation at least at the level that you'd think they would, given the number of years of education the average social worker has in addressing the environmental factors in question. My thanks go out to Sean Ehringer for connecting me with Jonathan. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. So one of the things that I wanted to do today is I feel like others in the healthcare industry might not quite have, and at least if I'm speaking for myself, a great understanding of what social workers do all day. Why don't we just kick this off? You know, like, what do social workers do and how do they think about things? A social worker is somebody that has a social work degree that has been trained to think about what happens at the individual, the community, and the the national or sort of policy level. It's this ecosystemic thinking that we are trained to do. There's this saying, like, what you know, what affects the pond affects the fish. If you're in a medical setting and you're a social worker and you see somebody maybe that, you know, has diabetes, well, you're going to think about the insulin, but you're also going to think, you know, when they go home, do they have a fridge that works? Do they have issues with the electricity being turned off in their house? Are there other people in the house that are going to be somehow interfering with this person's ability to manage this medical condition? And then you're also going to be thinking about what's going on in terms of payers and insurance and the policies around that. So it A social worker, like if you just look at them on the outside, you might not realize that all of this is going on, but it really is going on for all social workers all the time. And so that's an example of how we think about what we do. What you're detailing there are effectively in the new parlance being summed up under the umbrella term social determinants of health. Uh, Yeah. Is that a, a fair statement to say that what social workers are trained to be able to overcome or provide guidance around are helping patients despite potential social determinants of health? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we get caught up on is is words. The social determinants of health is something that social workers have been addressing for 100 years. Like that's at the core of what we do. And that has been a challenge because it's been a challenge to to translate to other folks because there's not one thing you can point to 
and say, here's this shiny little coin. This is the value of this. It's saying there are all sorts of reasons why people succeed or fail. Health, biological health, is one reason. But instead of saying health care, I like to think about social care. And I like to think about the social determinants of health as being central to this idea of social care. Health care is part of social care rather than social care being part of health care. You social workers, when you go to your social work parties, do you laugh at the rest of us who just cottoned on to the social determinants of health notion like five years ago? I mean, it's most of what we do. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we're wearing our Birkenstocks and our frilly dresses. And um, but no, we we honestly, you know, when when we're at our parties, if somebody ends up talking about work and we talk about the interface with other professions, sometimes this conversation comes up to say, hey, we just went to a Grand Rounds presentation and they talked about the importance of acknowledging safe communities and how successful somebody is post-discharge. And I just had to laugh because, of course, that's what social workers have been doing for 100 years. So absolutely. But we're sort of joking about this. I don't want anybody listening to think that, you know, social workers don't take their colleagues seriously because social work is inherently interdisciplinary because you can't be effective in people's lives without being interdisciplinary. That just has to happen. And just back to what the axiom that you stated earlier about what affects the pond affects the fish. I think that's kind of summed up in healthcare as, you know, the most important number in healthcare is someone's zip code. I definitely think that this is becoming more widely known, although I think it's very interesting how you explicitly stated that healthcare is part of the social context as opposed to the other way around. And I think subverting social under healthcare creates create some pretty fundamental issues. It absolutely does. Because what it says is it says somebody's medical diagnosis is primary and that in order to address the primary medical diagnosis, we have to do some other things on the side, some of these other social things. It's not the primary thing, but it's a side thing. Like, I wish we didn't have to do it, but we kind of do. Like, that's just wrong. Like that's that is the opposite of how we should be thinking about things. Well, especially if you're concerned in being paid for outcomes, you know, like if it's an FFS environment and you're just discharging and saying good luck. And I'm certainly not suggesting that anybody is doing that with any intention. But if we're concerned about ensuring that they leave in good health without having a readmission, then, yeah, this is a puzzle and all the pieces are necessary. Absolutely. And I, and I think that this idea of discharge and what folks are focused on, and we can't ignore money in all of this. I think this is one of the reasons why understanding the social determinants of health and starting to reconceptualize where healthcare falls in this is going to be essential in making this a financially viable endeavor moving forward. If you have somebody who's doing discharge planning and they're not actually able to do legitimate discharge planning, which in my mind involves not only understanding what happened while they were in the hospital, what was the medical problem that was being solved, but more importantly, what is happening out in the community that can either set that person up for success or failure. And so having somebody do discharge planning to just say, here's three numbers that you can call, here's an appointment that you may or may not follow up with, thanks a lot, goodbye, 
first of all, that should not be the job of a social worker because it doesn't use a social worker's skill sets. Second of all, if you're going to actually do legit discharge planning, it means taking the time to say, you know what, maybe medically things are okay here in the hospital, but the community can't support this person. And so discharge is not actually the right thing to do right now. Now, that involves larger policy issues. And certainly that's where conversations about step-down care and other options have come in. But if you really want to think about where the medical issue is located, it is located within the social context. You know, that brings up an interesting point relative to discharge planning. I have often been involved in conversations where someone's talking about discharge planning and they talk about the case manager and then a nurse comes up. And and it's kind of assumed, I think, that a case manager and a nurse are going to provide this sort of framework, maybe, that you're talking about and help the patient in the way that you're talking about. First of all, nurses are not trained to think about the community. And they're not trained to think about how to address the the micro, the meso, and the macro in one plan. And this is not a critique of nurses. N- nursing is is essential. It is as essential as medicine, as you know, as as doctors. Like there's no one is better than the other here. But when you're talking about releasing somebody into the community, you're calling on skill sets that nurses are not trained to have. And furthermore, social workers, because of the nature of social work, they probably went to school with the people that are in the community settings that they're referring out to, right? So they know these people. They, they go to the parties, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so they, they, know, they have the personal connection to make sure this is happening. Now, if you have a nurse and a case manager in most medical settings, they're probably not going to have veto power over a doctor. And if the doctor's like, the person is medically cleared, ready to go, nobody can say to the doctor, no. The person might be medically cleared, but the person is not able to return to the community because of this, this, and this. And nurses are trained not to override the doctors. I've been in hospital settings where I've seen doctors walk up to a nurse who's sitting at a computer doing charting, and the doctor says, I need that computer, and they get up. I've also seen social workers who say, well, there's an open computer right down the hall. You take that one because I'm busy, right? And that sort of level of mutual respect is essential if you're going to work together as a collaborative team. Now, if it's just going to be top-down, which is everything trickles down, then you're going to have ultimately the person who is at the top in this sort of fantasy scenario that I'm suggesting, which is the doctor, who is ultimately making decisions about what's going to happen in the community. And that's not the doctor's job either. That's not their expertise, not their training. Yeah, what I'm definitely cottoning onto here is that there is sort of this misnomer or this lack of appreciation for the skills that a social worker has. And that's kind of implicit if someone's suggesting, oh, well, the nurse can just do it. That is completely undervaluing and underappreciating what a social worker probably got a bachelor's and a master's and, uh, you know, and maybe even Mm -hmm. in certain cases a doctorate in order to complete. It's kind of like thinking about it relative to a grand rounds or a, uh, you know, like a tumor board where if the pathologist says something, you're not going to have another like the medical oncologist or something arguing about some cell something or other that's clearly within the pathologist's realm of expertise. 
So I think that's exactly what you're just saying, that if it is well understood that a social worker is coming at this holistic patient care with a completely separate set of expertise and knowledge and probably recommendations, and that that is just as important as the medical in a lot of cases. You know, once again, it goes back to this subversion. You know, if social work is underneath medical care, yeah, I can see how just structurally and the the framework of all of this could conspire to create the situation that it, it seems like in a lot of cases currently exists. And I'll just give a very concrete example of what you're saying, which is that if the idea is that the person is medically clear and they need to go home and they don't have a way to get home, In the hospital right now, many hospitals will say, well, let's get the social worker to take the person home. So the social worker ends up being a taxi service, but the social worker is not being asked, hey, when you go home, do an environmental scan. You know what's happening with this person because you've spent a lot of time with this person and come back and let's figure out how we can make sure that the person isn't readmitted in the next 30 days right? Let's use your skill set to do this. Instead, it's just take them home and then come back. Does that happen a lot? Who's giving that dictive? Well, I think that it's in some hospital settings. And, and, and I'll say, you know, as with anything, there's a range, right? So you get Boston Children's Hospital where you have folks coming in in crisis and they are assigned a social worker in the very beginning, uh, right there in the emergency department. And a social worker stays with them through their visit. So there's continuity of care. The person's able to, over time, get information about the biopsychosocial, spiritual issues that are happening that might affect whatever the issue is and really do follow up. And the social worker, because they're sort of really the experts of this patient and this family at this point, they are acknowledged and validated and recognized as being an essential part of this service episode, which is different than a family that would come in at another hospital and they would be seen by somebody at the front desk. Then they sit and they wait and they don't talk to anybody. And then a resident comes in, asks them a few questions. Then the nurse will come in, bring them back. And then another person will come in and then there might have you know, some rounding or and then finally somebody will say, oh, this patient is not being compliant. Let's call in the social worker. <laughs> and, at, and at that point, you're like, yeah, <laughs> of course. First of all, the patient might not even know what they're supposed to be compliant with. But second of all, they might be like, why should I trust you people? I've had 10 people in the last two hours ask me the same questions. And when I answer, they haven't given me the kind of feedback to suggest that they care about me or that they're interested in what I have to say. It just looks like they're checking off boxes. And then you send a social worker in. And honestly, and this is most people out in the community, they don't know what social workers do either, right? They think of the myth of the social worker, which is either child welfare, meaning you're going to try and take my kid, or you hand out food stamps, which is totally not what social workers do. And so they say, we're going to call in social work. And people are like, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean? And so they're not happy to see the social worker either. These are two extremely different scenarios. But I would say that on the whole, most medical settings, most hospitals, say, let's bring in social work when we don't know what else to do or when we don't want to do something. That's when we give it to the social worker. What's on the social worker is this experience of not standing up for themselves and not having an authority to be able to say, this is really a waste of my time and skill set. And it could be because they're one or two social workers 
out of 100 medical and nursing staff, the MDs, the PAs, the NPs, the RNs, and then a couple of social workers. And so they don't actually have the numbers or the, the positions in management that can actually affect that kind of change of authority. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that because in order for, like, for example, at Boston Children's, in order to have a social worker who's that engaged with any given patient, obviously that takes a lot of time. So you need to have a contingent of social workers on staff that are at the ready. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, can, I, I can also imagine, and I want to circle back to that in a sec, because I want to ask you about outcomes and if there's, whether there's any, well, let me just ask this question. So relative to Boston Children's, and obviously they've got social workers in a certain quantity, has there been any research or look into an increase in outcomes or patient satisfaction or, you know, any of the quality measures that are typically looked at relative to employing that workforce? Yes, there has been research. I can send you some stuff. But what we do know is that real team care leads to better outcomes. And when I'm talking about outcomes, I'm talking about for the person. Sometimes it ends up costing more for the system in the short term. And this is tough. And I, you know, I have I have a lot of respect for CFOs, CEOs who are so disconnected from the day-to-day that it's unreasonable to expect them to kind of think through the experience of the patients in their hospitals because all they're seeing are the the line items on the budgets and they're seeing these huge dollar amounts they're saying well where can we cut this where can we do this because you know we have these other needs and we have to fund those i want folks to know that i am acknowledging that everybody is playing the role that they are there to play i just want to circle back to something that you mentioned about having this kind of team based care And I think one of the things that struck me as you were explaining that there's a lot of talk these days about having a nurse navigator or a quarterback of care. And and oftentimes there's a lot of talk about how PCP needs to be the quarterback of care. But I think one of the things that gets lost maybe in just the lexicon that's being used is the idea that when we're talking about the PCP, we might be talking about the PCP office or the nurse navigator group, for example, as opposed to one individual. Mm -hmm. I could see that in order to really quarterback care well, that part of that team would not only need to be the medical side, but then also someone like a social worker who is able to address effectively or has the training to address these social determinants of health. Absolutely. And also, I think that, you know, if you think about the hospital milieu, if you see somebody sitting in a patient's room, sitting by their bed, just talking to them, if you're racing around because you're about to go into surgery because somebody's got a gunshot wound and they're dying or that there's a code and the teams are like, if you're running by and you see the social worker just sitting there talking with somebody, you're probably going to think, well, this is a waste of people. Right. What are they doing? Just hanging out? This isn't social hour. Right. We're not paying you to socialize. And I think that that it's a problem in perception because there are things that you can learn about in terms of the biology, uh, in terms of the science of somebody very quickly. And most of the things that you need to know socially take time to figure out. It takes time for people to trust you to talk about them. It takes time to figure out how all the pieces fit together. So there is a way in which social workers are trained to see the gray in the world 
And I don't mean like the sad, depressing gray. I mean that things aren't black and white. It's either I have it or I don't. They're trained to see the subtleties that can make the difference between wanting to live and not wanting to live. And that's not something that necessarily looks or seems like is efficient in the way that we think about efficiency in a hospital setting. It's going to take behavioral science to create that adherent patient. So we're talking about all these things. And at this point, they're becoming pretty self-evident and de facto a priori. And yet I have never been in any of these conversations and, and heard social worker come up. Right. This <laughs> is kind of amazing. Yeah. What advice do you have for executives? Because there's payer executives that listen to this show. There's health system executives. What would you have to say to them? I would say, first of all, stop thinking of social workers as discharge planners. Discharge planning, the way that it's done in most hospitals, is a waste of a social worker's education. You don't need somebody with a master's in social work to set up appointments and make sure that all the papers are signed, right? That's not a social worker's job. If you do want social workers to do discharge planning, make sure they're actually doing legitimate discharge planning and that that includes the ability to circle back to the team and say, you know what, maybe their condition is under control right now, but the social environment they're about to return to is going to mean that they're going to be back in about four weeks. And we know that that is not what we want for the hospital or for the patient. And so to have the authority to be able to make those decisions and to have those conversations. So that's one thing. It has to do with the discharge planning. The second thing is if you want people who can really get to know what's going on with these social determinants of health, have social workers do that, not nurses. Because social workers, that's what our training is in. That's what our education is in. And it's likely that you have social workers in a medical setting, in a hospital setting, that have spent time out in the community where that is 99% of what we do. So have social workers do social care. And then the last thing is really to set up a hospital so that you have social workers in authority positions, authority-making positions, so that you have social work managers not just managing social workers, but that are actually part of the management team that is looking over what's happening with the nurses and the PAs and the MDs and the RNs so that they can bring in their perspective on the social determinants of health. And even to the extent of saying, you know what, here is a place where this system is not working well with this other system in the hospital, not to mention that the hospital system is not working well with this system outside of the hospital because social workers are trained to do that systemic thinking and to be able to identify these things. So making sure that social workers have authority within the hospital means that they will be able to speak up when they see systems level issues. They will be able to speak up when they see where the focus on healthcare is minimizing or being dismissive of these social determinants of care. It will also set up a model in the hospital, which I think is really important, which is to say everybody can't be right all the time. And when we allow ourselves to stand in our authority and to say, look, I know you're the surgeon, but we didn't go through all of these safety protocols first. Or there's this thing that we are supposed to do, and it seems like we're rushing ahead and skipping. Or 
there is this outcome, which we're assuming, but we know some things about this person and we think that that's not going to actually be the case. Like when we're able to step up in that authority and know that we're not going to be punished by the system, then it ends up being better for the patients because the patients come to the fore. But it also ends up being better for the employees because you have folks who say, my expertise matters. And then on the other hand, you have people saying, I have other people who are legitimately going to call me out for the right reasons to make sure that I'm doing my job the best that I can. Yeah, and I think what you're describing right there is all of the research on what makes a good team. And there's there's plenty, the psychological safety and and all of that, which Google proved without a shadow of a doubt, is how to excel as Mm -hmm. an organization is you need really well-functioning teams. That's exactly right. And I can also see from a structural perspective, this last one that you had mentioned in your list of advice for healthcare executives, the idea of having management who not only manages the social workers, but then also has a seat at the leadership table. Because if, you know, social workers are are people too and have different levels of experience. And I could see that if a social worker didn't have a manager coach, per se, who was helping them learn more and stay true to the mission and not kind of get tangled up in what other people's expectations of what they're doing might be that it would be very difficult to perform their unique function well. That's exactly right. That's absolutely right. And and I think one of the reasons that everything that you just said is so important is because when you have somebody whose professional expertise is valued and you have a team that says we are an interdisciplinary team rather than we are a team of doctors and nurses who have invited other people to our table, which is, that's not interdisciplinary work, by the way. If you're listening and you have interdisciplinary teams that are run by the doctor and managed by the nurse and nobody else on the team feels like they have the authority to challenge or change the course of treatment, given their their area of expertise, then you don't actually have an interdisciplinary team. You have a team of doctors and nurses who are asking for input, but that's not interdisciplinary. So I think that it's really important to have that be a legitimate shared authority within the area of expertise. Going back to one of the things that you were talking about before about the step down care. So, you know, let's talk about one of the things that you've mentioned several times is the idea that a social worker could influence discharge or influence care or say this patient is not ready to be discharged. What happens then? This patient does not require medical care any longer. There's this idea that is becoming very prevalent right now about how it's so important, you know, patients want to go home because get the patient out of the hospital because they want to go home. Where does the social worker recommend the patient go if they shouldn't be in the hospital? Maybe they want to go home. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But like, where's that middle spot? I think it's always important to interrogate (laughs) what's happening. And if somebody says, I want to go home, you need to ask yourself, is that just kind of an empowered way of saying, I hate it here? This is a horrible experience. Because if that's actually what they're saying, then the onus of responsibility falls back on the hospital to make the patient's experience better. Now, of course, I understand medical procedures can be very painful. Healing can be very painful. I'm not saying that it should be all puppies and rainbows. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. But let's say somebody does want to go home. I'll tell just a quick personal story. When our 
twin boys were born at 32 weeks because one of the babies was not growing and there was an emergency C-section. One of our boys was released after about three weeks and the other one was released after about six weeks under five pounds. We did not want to be at the hospital anymore. And in fact, we were going back and forth because we have an older child. So at one point we had, we had a four-year-old, a six-week-old at home, and then we had an infant in the NICU. We didn't want to stay at the NICU. Ask anybody, like, no, we want to go home. But did we want to go home with a baby that could have died? No. Were we experts in a four-and-a-half-pound preemie? No. So... What ended up happening was we ended up having a social worker who wasn't actually a social worker. I mean, she was trained as a social worker, but she actually ended up working for the insurance company. And it was her job to get the babies out as, as soon as possible. And so the medical, because it was, again, a medical decision, not a social decision. The medical decision was, we're going to send you home with medical equipment to monitor your baby's breathing, to monitor the heart. If something goes wrong, beeps are going to go off to let you know. And can I tell you, it was probably mm, one of the most awful 24 hours of my life. We were so terrified that our little baby, who's teeny tiny, was going to die. And we hated being in the hospital. Not that we hated the people that we were with. We just wanted everybody home. But we hated having our baby home and being afraid that he was going to die even more. And so if we're thinking about like, what's the role of the social worker, one of the things that the social worker should have done was to help us feel like we were actually part of this decision-making process about when the baby should come home. We knew that the baby wasn't five pounds, which was kind of a basic uh, you know, decision point for when a baby should be re released from the NICU. So we knew something wasn't up like that. We also knew that the NICU providers were saying, your baby's probably going to be fine. And that, that's not reassuring either. We needed somebody who could sit down and talk with us and say, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Singer, I know this is really stressful. What's going on? What resources do you have at home? What do you think would be helpful? How can we talk through this first 24 hours? Because if it was going to happen, like if that was the rule, and I, I would say that that shouldn't be the rule, but if it was going to happen, at least having somebody who could do that, that's not overstepping what the role of the hospital is. That's actually what the hospital should be doing. Because God forbid our baby did die. He didn't. He's seven and he's unbelievable now. But what if he did die? What if when we decided to disconnect the beeping machine because it woke up his twin brother and our daughter came down crying because she was like, what's the noise? Maybe we disconnected it because we just wanted everybody to get some sleep. And maybe he died then. What if that had happened? It didn't. And somebody's going to say, well, it didn't, and we knew it wasn't, so you just needed to trust us because we're the experts. But I think that is exactly the wrong way of thinking about things, because it could have. Well, I mean, I think the testament to that is seven years later, it obviously still freaks you out. It totally does. I mean, I'm on a podcast, but if you and I were just hanging out having coffee, I'd probably be crying right now, because it was so intense. It was such a painful situation. And I am probably among the most resourced and supported and privileged people that comes out of a hospital. So if that's what I went through, imagine what it would have been like for somebody who went home to a crappier situation, less support, 
less resources. I could go on and on and on. So that's what needed to happen and it didn't happen. Well, then, you know, this is also a really interesting case study because it wasn't the hospital that was providing that, in quote, social worker. It was a payer. Yes. Yes. And this, the hospital didn't have the social worker. I don't know why you have a NICU without a social worker, without a bunch of social workers. I mean, if you're talking about stressed out people who are like losing their minds, it's parents who just had a baby that might die. Like that's that's where you need the social workers. And if NICUs are not providing social workers there, totally missing out on one of the most important places. Yeah. Or if they're not recognizing the fact that the social worker the payer provides is not functioning in the capacity of a social worker. And the payer shouldn't be providing the social worker because they have different incentives. You know, at the end of the day, we all have different incentives in our jobs. And if you are incentivized to reduce costs, that's going to influence all your decisions. But if your incentive is to make sure that the person that you're talking to feels like they have the resources and the supports necessary to go on with their life and to be successful, then that's what you're going to focus on. That's what's going to influence your decision. And I feel like this has a larger context to what you're describing because, you know, it might be actually one of the reasons why social workers are elusive, if you will, like the role and the value of social workers is elusive. Because if you do have social workers calling themselves social workers, but they're not behaving, you know, effectively what they're doing is like a medical utilization review effectively, uh, then that really clouds the integrity, if you will, of the job description. And, And I think utilization review is really important. And I think that it can absolutely improve the quality of care. But if that's not what's going on, then it gets in the way. And if all you think about as the social worker is either utilization review or I'm going to talk to you for 10 minutes and then I'm going to call a psychiatrist who's going to put you on medication. Like, that's a problem. And then I think it goes back to what you were talking about before about the cross-disciplinary team. You know, you might have somebody from the payer on that interdisciplinary, within that interdisciplinary conversation. But by subsuming the social worker and the medical utilization review payer type, you know, into one entity, then obviously you are not satisfying probably either one particularly well. That's right. That's exactly right. So the advice for executives, I'm just going to recap here quickly just so that we get this in a nice listicle. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) We're going to stop thinking about the social workers as discharge planners. We're going to do legit discharge planning. And we're going to make sure that the org chart within the hospital has sufficient social workers and that they're reporting up through a management channel that is going to support the unique needs of the team, as well as have an equal seat at the table. And making sure that you have social workers doing social work stuff rather than having nurses do social work stuff. Right. So so if you're focusing on the social determinants of health, if you believe in that, like legitimately believe in that, make sure that it's social workers who are focusing on that. Excellent. So, Jonathan, where can people go to get the podcast if they would like to learn more about the intricacies of social work? They can go to socialworkpodcast.com. That is a URL if I ever heard one. (laughs) I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me. 
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.